Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, President Nelson jumps the shark. Now I have to pause for a moment to explain what I mean by jumps the shark. I've used this expression in the past couple of days with friends of mine who did not know what on earth I was talking about. Well, in case you don't know what I'm talking about, the phrase jumping the shark has to do with the very popular TV series Happy Days back in the 1970s. It was a number one show on ABC, and the most popular character in it was Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. The Fonz. Well, in the fifth season of that show, the family goes out to California and Fonzie answers a challenge to his bravery by putting on water skis, swim trunks, and his trademark black leather jacket, and literally jumping over a confined shark. After that happened, the phrase jumping the shark entered into the popular lexicon. Jumping the shark, going from Wikipedia now, jumping the shark is the moment when something that was once popular, that no longer warrants the attention it previously received, makes an attempt at publicity, which only serves to highlight its irrelevance. The idiom jumping the shark is pejorative, most commonly used in reference to unsuccessful gimmicks for promoting something. It is similar to past its peak, but more specifically suggests an unwillingness to acknowledge the failing. Originally, the phrase was used to describe an episode of a television comedy with a gimmick or unlikely occurrence desperately attempting to keep viewers' interest. Moments labeled as jumping the shark are considered indications that writers have exhausted their focus, that the show has strayed irretrievably from an older and better formula, or that the series as a whole is declining in quality. So now that I've spent some time explaining what I mean by the expression jumping the shark, what do I mean by saying the title of this program is President Nelson Jumps the Shark? Well, thereby hangs the subject of tonight's podcast. In November of 2015, the LDS Church created a policy of exclusion related to members of the church in gay marriages and also their children. The policy designated those in gay marriages as being in a state of apostasy and therefore subject to excommunication from the LDS Church. But it went further than that. It also stated that their children could not be blessed, could not be baptized, and if they were boys, they could not receive the priesthood. Of course, if they're girls, they're like all the other girls in the church and they still can't receive the priesthood. The policy also stated that their children could not be baptized or serve a mission until they reached the age of 18, had denounced their parents' lifestyle, and had received special permission from the First Presidency of the Church. In January of 2016, just two months later, this policy was declared to be revelation from God by none other than Russell M. Nelson. Now, in a head-spinningly short period of time, The LDS Church, with the same Russell M. Nelson as its president, has reversed that policy and has also claimed that this reversal of the policy was, wait for it, by revelation from God. This announcement of the policy reversal has set off an explosion of controversy, both inside the church and outside the church. The question has been raised, how could God give a policy of exclusion in November of 2015 and then only three years and five months later on April 4th, 2019, could that same God by revelation reverse that policy? It is a good question and one worthy of some consideration. 
But before we get to that, I want to thank everybody who has contributed to Radio Free Mormon. A few weeks ago, I made a call for contributions to the podcast. I talked about the amount of work it requires for me to research the podcast, to record the podcast, and to edit the podcasts. On average, there's probably 16 to 20 hours that goes into most of my podcasts. And for the multi-part podcasts, substantially more than that. A number of you stepped up to the plate when I made that call for contributions and did contribute. I want to thank you for that publicly. I also want to encourage the rest of you, which would be the majority of you, and you know who you are, to take this moment to pause the podcast, to go to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage and make a contribution. Please try and make a contribution of at least $10 a month. I'm not asking for any more than that, but if you want to contribute more than that, I'm not going to stand in your way. Please go ahead and make that contribution now. You'll be glad you did. I know I will. Now, on to the rest of tonight's show. First, we're going to look briefly at the history of this policy. What led up to it? What has gone on since it was leaked in November of 2015? And what this recent reversal of that policy means to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and what it reveals about their leaders, both with their acquaintance with what is revelation, their ability to identify what is revelation, and even the concept that they may possibly be intentionally and knowingly making false claims of revelation in order to cement their authority over members of the church. First, the history of the policy. The LDS Church has for decades been engaged in the fight against gay marriage in the United States. This has been a systematic effort from the top leadership of the church to battle gay marriage on every front. Two examples will have to suffice. Bill Reel and I did an episode regarding the proclamation on the family and the origins of that proclamation and how it was that the evidence suggests that the proclamation itself was drafted with a very specific political purpose in mind. And that political purpose was to give the LDS Church standing in the argument about gay marriage going on at the very same time in the courts of appeals in Hawaii. I refer you to that podcast if you would like more details on the subject. The proclamation on the family, of course, was issued in 1995. And even though the LDS Church's political battle against gay marriage predates 1995, that is a good data point for purposes of this conversation tonight. The next data point is Proposition 8 in California, which occurred in 2008. The church was heavily involved in advocating for Proposition 8. And Proposition 8, as you will recall, was a proposition that defined marriage as only between a man and a woman. And that is why the church was behind it. It was a way to combat gay marriage in the state of California. The LDS Church was successful, at least briefly, in getting Proposition 8 passed by the voters of California, but that victory was short-lived because a federal judge overturned the proposition on the basis that it was not constitutional. But that did not stop the LDS Church in its fight against gay marriage. Finally, however, the issue reached the United States Supreme Court, and on June 26th, 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its decision declaring gay marriage to be constitutional throughout all states in the Union. At this point, there was nothing left to fight. The church had lost the battle. The battle the church had engaged in and spent untold amounts of blood and treasure for the past several decades to defeat. 
Well, this obviously did not sit well with the leadership of the church. And behind closed doors, they decided to come up with a policy that would express their displeasure with the United States Supreme Court's decision. Remember, that was June 26th of 2015. Just a little over four months later, in early November of 2015, the LDS Church, through its leadership, created a policy which it then put into the leadership manuals of the church. First, a little bit about the policy itself. The policy was twofold. First, it defined anybody who was involved in a gay relationship, including a legally sanctioned gay marriage, to be in a state of apostasy. This is significant. Prior to this, a person's homosexuality was judged by local leaders of the church in conformance with the commonly understood idea of the law of chastity. The leaders appeared to be concerned that local leaders might be confused that now that a person could be legally married in a gay marriage, that bishops might not think that this was something that was actionable or a disciplinary worthy offense. The policy took gay marriage out of the realm of the law of chastity and designated it as apostasy. If a person is in apostasy, that is something that is not necessarily left up to the discretion of the local leaders because in the manual already, it had defined someone who was in apostasy as someone who needed to be excommunicated. This move had the effect of taking the discretion in such situations out of the hands of the local leaders and making it incumbent upon them to excommunicate anybody who was in a gay marriage or gay relationship. The second part of the policy was even worse than the first part because it involved the children of such people in gay marriages or gay relationships. Those children could not be blessed as a baby. They could not be baptized at the age of eight. They could not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost at the age of eight. If they were a boy, they could not receive the priesthood at the age of 12. And they could not receive any of these things until the age of 18. And only then, if they renounced the lifestyle of the offending parent and got special permission from the first presidency of the church. And they would have to do these things also in order to go on a mission. It is important to remember that this was not a policy that was announced by the church. Instead, it was snuck into the leadership manual, which is private and accessible only to leaders in the church, and that would be local leaders as well, the state presidents, the bishops, who had access to this manual. It was snuck into this leadership manual by the dark of night, and the only reason it came to the attention of the public is because somebody leaked the contents of that manual. This leak occurred on November 5th, 2015. Remember, remember, the 5th of November. And it created such a firestorm of controversy that the following evening, November 6th, 2015, a Friday evening, there was a special interview conducted by the head of the Public Relations Department, Michael Otterson, with Apostle D. Todd Christofferson, who was likely chosen because it is somewhat well known that he is a brother who is gay. In this approximately 10-minute long interview, Michael Otterson asked Elder Christofferson a series of staged questions, and Elder Christofferson gave a series of staged answers. Even in this interview, Elder Christofferson tips his hand that it was the United States Supreme Court decision that prompted the creation of this policy when he stated, With the Supreme Court's decision in the United States, there was a need for a distinction to be made between what may be legal and what may be the law of the church and the law of the Lord. 
Later on in the interview, Michael Otterson asks the question, why are the children of these same-sex partners an issue here? And here is Elder Christofferson's response. Play the tape. So, Elder Christofferson, why are the children of these same-sex partners an issue here? Well, in answering or responding to your question, uh, let me say I speak not only as an apostle in the Church, but as a husband, as a father, and as a grandfather. And like others in those more enduring callings, I have a sense of compassion and sympathy and, and tender feelings that they do. So this policy originates out of that compassion. It originates from a desire to protect children in their innocence and in their minority years. When, for example, there is the formal blessing and naming of a child in the Church, which happens when a child has parents who are members of the Church, uh, it triggers uh, a lot of things. First, a membership record for them. It triggers uh, the assignment of visiting and home teachers. It triggers an expectation that they will be in primary and in the other Church organizations. And that uh, is likely not going to be an appropriate thing in the home setting, in the family setting, where they're living as children, where their parents are a same-sex couple. We don't want there to be the conflicts that that would engender. We don't want the child to have to deal with issues that might arise where the parents feel one way and the expectations of the Church are very different. And so with the other ordinances, on through baptism and so on. There's time for that if when a child reaches majority, he or she feels like that's what they want. And they can make a, an informed and conscious decision about that. Nothing is lost to them in the end if that's the direction they want to go. And in the meantime, they're not placed in a position where there will be uh, difficulties, challenges, conflicts that can injure their development in very tender years. Notice that Elder Christofferson says that this policy originates out of compassion. It originates from a desire to protect children in their innocence and their minority years. So really, the entire reason for this policy is because we love the children. It's for their benefit. It is designed to help the children. But this policy actually ends up undercutting some of the fundamental doctrines of the LDS Church since its inception. Number one. Jesus is the one who in the New Testament said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. And yet this policy appears to do exactly that. It is the LDS Church that affirms how important it is to have the gift of the Holy Ghost to guide us in the ways of truth and right, to give us the support, the strength, the inspiration that we need in order to know what is right and to do what is right. And frequently, church leaders have talked about how important that is especially to members of the church in their teenage years with all the temptations that surround them. Well, apparently that applies to all the children in the church and all the teenagers in the church unless your parents are gay and in a gay relationship. Finally, it is the doctrine and covenants that declares it is the obligation of all parents in the church to make sure that their children are baptized when they reach the age of accountability, which is understood to be the age of eight. And if the parents fail to have their children baptized at the age of eight, the sin be upon the heads of the parents. That is what the Revelation says. 
But with this policy, the church took that decision away from the parents and said, no, you cannot have your children baptized at the age of eight under these certain circumstances, which raised the question, if the sin was upon the parents for not having their children baptized at the age of eight, and the church forbids them from having their children baptized at the age of eight, upon whose head does that sin now rest? So this interview with Elder Christofferson was the Friday after the leak of the policy. The policy was leaked November 5th, 2015. That was a Thursday. This interview occurred on the following Friday evening, November 6th, 2015. And then one week later, on November 13th, 2015, the First Presidency issued a letter affirming that this was indeed the policy of the church. This letter was important because it not only affirmed the policy, but it also clarified the policy. And some would say it even changed the policy. The policy had been placed in Handbook 1, Section 16.13. And in the week between the leak of the policy and the issuance of this first presidency letter, a number of questions had been raised. One of those issues had to do with the fact that the policy language was so broad It would forbid baptism to children of parents, even if one of those parents had perhaps in their teenage years engaged in homosexuality, had repented of it, had gone on in faithfulness in the church, been married to another faithful member, had children, and then wanted to baptize them. Well, under the original language of the policy, that child could not be baptized. So this first presidency letter clarified or in fact changed the policy in order to limit the scope of the policy. This is a quote from the letter from the first presidency, November 13th, 2015, quote, the provisions of handbook one section 16.13 that restrict priesthood ordinances for minors apply only to those children whose primary residence is with a couple living in a same gender marriage or similar relationship, unquote. The other question had to do with what do we do with children who have a parent who's in a gay relationship who's already been baptized and is waiting to receive the priesthood if it's a boy. Can that person receive the priesthood? Well, the original language of the policy was so broad that the answer to that was no. And in fact, there were instances of young men who were ready to receive the priesthood at this time period whose bishops then put it on hold and delayed it or canceled it because of the original policy. That is why this first presidency letter came out to clarify that issue as well and basically say that kids in that situation are sort of grandfathered in. This also from the letter. When a child living with such a same-gender couple has already been baptized and is actively participating in the church, provisions of section 16.13 do not require, do not require, that his or her membership activities or priesthood privileges be curtailed or that further ordinances be withheld. So if you've already been baptized, you skate in, you're grandfathered in, you're good to go. This only applies to children who have not been baptized as of the date of the issuance of the policy. The result of this policy was that hundreds if not thousands of members began to resign their membership in the church publicly there were mass public resignations on Temple Square and at other locations as a result of this policy. And amongst many members of the church, there was a hope that the church would back off of this policy because at no point had the church called this revelation. It was not called revelation in the manual. It had not been called revelation by Elder D. Todd Christofferson. 
In the interview, it was not referred to as revelation in the first presidency letter. It was a policy, and as we know in the LDS Church, policies are much easier to change than revelations. Well, all that hope came to an end in January of 2016 when Elder Russell M. Nelson decided to take matters into his own hands and declare at a young adult devotional broadcast from BYU, Hawaii, that in fact this policy was the result of revelation. Play the tape. We sustained 15 men who are ordained as prophets, seers, and revelators. When a thorny problem arises, and they only seem to get thornier each day, these 15 men wrestle with the issue, trying to see all the ramifications of various courses of action. And they diligently seek to hear the voice of the Lord. After fasting, praying, studying, pondering, and counseling with my brethren about weighty matters, it is not unusual for me to be awakened during the night with further impressions about issues with which we are concerned. And my brethren have the same experience. The First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles counsel together and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the President of the Church to proclaim the Lord's will. This prophetic process was followed in 2012 with the change in minimum age for missionaries. And again with the recent additions to the Church's handbook, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries, filled with compassion for all, and especially for the children, we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter. Ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of His hope, for eternal life for each of his children. We considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. Revelation from the Lord to his servants is a sacred process. Stop the tape. Notice a number of things. First off, Elder Nelson makes no bones about the fact this is revelation. This is not just a policy. This is the will of God. Elder Nelson also makes it clear that this policy came up because of the United States Supreme Court ruling legalizing gay marriage and making it constitutional. He says that the recent additions to the church's handbook were made, quote, consequent, that means because of, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries. Unquote. He then goes on to describe 
a process of wrestling with the Lord to understand His will, that this is done, remember, out of compassion for all, and especially for the children. Remember, it's always about the children. This is the whole reason for the policy. This is what Elder Christofferson said in the interview. This is what President Nelson is saying in January of 2016, that this policy was done out of compassion for the children. He also says, quote, we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. That's an extremely humorous quote, because as we saw, only one week after the policy was leaked, the First Presidency had to issue a letter which corrected the original language of the policy. In other words, out of all the countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise that Elder Russell Nelson says they considered, these rather obvious problems with the policy language never seem to have occurred to anybody. Russell M. Nelson then goes on to describe a meeting where all the apostles were present and the first presidency, and the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord. So obviously it's revelation. The mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord. He says each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. He then says it was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. So Elder Nelson is describing a meeting at which all the apostles are present, at which they have this incredible spiritual experience when President Monson declares this policy as the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, and they understand that it is revelation from God by the Holy Ghost, and they therefore sustain it as such. He then ends, Revelation from the Lord to his servants is a sacred process. So it is clear beyond dispute that Elder Nelson is claiming that this policy was a revelation from God. Now, interestingly, after he said this and after he described this meeting at which all the other apostles were present, I waited with some expectation for the next general conference in April of 2016 to see how many other apostles would step forward and confirm Elder Nelson's story about this meeting at which all of them were allegedly present. And I was really not that surprised to hear nothing but the sound of crickets. There was no other apostle who came forward to corroborate Elder Nelson's story. He was the only person claiming that this meeting existed. And interestingly, in the first presidency letter from November of 2015, signed by Thomas S. Monson, it was never mentioned once in that letter that this was the result of revelation. So here we'd entered into this strange new world where the president of the church, Thomas S. Monson, who allegedly received this revelation, never claimed himself that it was a revelation. Instead, we have Russell M. Nelson, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, claiming it was revelation on President Monson's behalf. But it was at this point that Russell M. Nelson really put his foot in it. He decided to double down on the issue and make it something that could not be questioned by members of the church by playing the revelation card, which he declared plainly, clearly, and unequivocally in January of 2016. Now fast forward to April 4th, 2019, just a little over three years later, when apparently things have been going on behind the scene that have led the leadership of the church and now President Russell M. Nelson to decide they need to reverse that policy. So on April 4th, 2019, 
two days before General Conference is set to begin. President Russell M. Nelson does not make this announcement himself. No, he hands it off to his first counselor, Elder Oaks, because it appears that Russell M. Nelson has enough sense to not want to go out publicly and personally declare that the reversal of the policy is revelation, when only three years before, he's the one who publicly declared that the policy itself was revelation from God. So here is the message from the First Presidency at the leadership training session two days prior to General Conference. Quote, At this wonderful General Conference time, it is our privilege to bring together senior leaders of the church from around the world to provide instruction and to unify our effort to bring God's children closer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, in a leadership session, the First Presidency provided instruction on several important topics. We are pleased to share with our members and friends some very positive messages from that meeting. This is from the news release that was issued by the church on April 4th, 2019, reporting on what was said during the leadership session. Note that President Nelson actually does speak in this meeting, but he doesn't make the announcement that the policy has been changed. Instead, he just emphasizes how important it is that God leads his church by revelation. President Russell M. Nelson reflected that throughout this past year, the Lord has blessed us with revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that which bringeth joy, that which bringeth life eternal, that which bringeth an entire reversal of what was declared as revelation only three years before. No, I added that last part. Going on, still quoting from President Nelson, we are all eyewitnesses to revelations from the Lord as he guides the affairs of his church. So President Nelson is going to still talk about all the revelations that are being received, but then he's going to trot out his first counselor to say, oh, by the way, that revelation from three years ago, eh, we're reversing that now, and we're reversing it by revelation again. Going on with the news release, President Dallin H. Oaks instructed that the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to love and treat all people with kindness and civility. <laughs> Well, I guess, that's a <laughs> I guess that's a recent development. President Dallin H. Oaks instructed that the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us to love and treat all people with kindness and civility, even when we disagree. God has promised all blessings to those who strive to keep his commandments, and we have a duty to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Okay, now he gets to it. Listen closely to what President Oaks says. While we cannot change the Lord's doctrine, okay, immediately they're going to try and draw a distinction between doctrine and policy. This policy of exclusion, the November 5th policy from 2015, that was just a policy. It doesn't make any difference that President Nelson claimed it was a revelation to begin with. In fact, President Oaks is going to studiously avoid the fact that that's what President Nelson said in January of 2016. He says, while we cannot change the Lord's doctrine, we want our members and our policies, see, focusing on the policies, to be considerate of those struggling with the challenges of mortality. Well, here he's obviously talking about gay marriage and homosexuality because that's the key word. They're struggling with the challenges of mortality. We all know that in church lingo, gay people are not just homosexual by nature. Instead, they struggle with homosexuality. And I also really like how Elder Oaks puts the blame for this on the members of the church. At no point is there any responsibility taken by the leaders of the church for instituting this policy in the first place. Instead, the blame is put on the members 
And the church is going to now reverse that policy in order to help the members be more considerate with those struggling with the challenges of mortality. In other words, to help the members be considerate of homosexuals. It's not the leaders who have trouble being considerate of homosexuals. It's those darn members. So we're going to help them out here as leaders of the church. Once again, that sentence, while we cannot change the Lord's doctrine, we want our members and our policies to be considerate of those struggling with the challenges of mortality. In his remarks, President Oaks shared information about changes to recent church policies. Remember, there's the word policies. Policies can be changed. Doctrine cannot. President Oaks shared information about changes to recent church policies related to lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender members. And in this news release, it says that more information on that announcement is included below, and we'll get to that in a second. But note that President Oaks is sandwiched between President Nelson, who talks about how great revelation is and how God leads his church by revelation. And we've all been eyewitnesses to all these revelations that God's been giving to the church in the past year. And President Henry B. Eyring, who a second counselor, will speak third. And guess what President Henry B. Eyring talks about? If you guess revelation, you go to the head of the class. President Henry B. Eyring spoke of continuing revelation in the true and living church, teaching that the Lord has led by revelation through prophets from the time of Adam and Eve to the present day, that includes President Nelson, to the present day, and such revelation, boy, he can't say revelation enough, that's the third time just in the synopsis in the news release, and such revelation to his servants will continue until he comes again. One reason is that we need the Lord's direction to meet changing circumstances, and he has guided changes in practice and policy throughout the history of the church. So obviously, President Eyring and President Nelson are there to give moral support to President Oaks in making this announcement. President Nelson talks about revelation, President Eyring talks about revelation, and President Oaks is tasked with the job of talking about a new revelation which reverses the revelation from three years ago. The First Presidency goes on to make it clear that this new change is also by revelation. They state, We pray these teachings will be received in the same spirit we received them from the Lord. So they receive these teachings from the Lord. This change in policy is received by the First Presidency from the Lord and have shared them with our leaders. That means their local leaders. So we pray these teachings will be received in the same spirit we received them from the Lord and have shared them with our leaders, the local leaders, as positive and inspiring instruction that will bless many lives. Now, notice something about this, all right? You can't say something positive about the reversal of this policy without saying the negative about the institution of the policy in the first place. So when they call the change in the policy positive and inspiring instruction, they necessarily at the same time say that the original policy itself was the opposite of positive and inspiring. It was not positive. It was not inspiring. Quoting again from the First Presidency letter as set forth in the news release from April 4, 2019. We pray these teachings will be received in the same spirit we receive them from the Lord and have shared them with our leaders as positive and inspiring instruction that will bless many lives. Well, wait a second. If the change in the policy blesses many lives, what does the original policy do to many lives? I think it's something other than bless them. And then they conclude by saying, with gratitude, we acknowledge 
God's continuing guidance. So once again, there's the revelation card, God's continuing guidance and love for all his children and invite our members to renew their commitment to follow the teachings of the Savior Jesus Christ to love God and love one another. So once more, they're not only going to play the revelation card, they're going to once again, lay it at the feet of the members. The members are to blame. We invite our members to renew their commitment to follow the teachings of the Savior Jesus Christ, to love God and love one another. Well, apparently the leaders of the church, the ones who instituted this policy just three years ago, have no responsibility in this entire fiasco. It's just the members who need to be invited to follow the example of the Savior. Even though this policy completely contradicted one of the Savior's strongest admonitions, that you allow those children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And by the way, if you offend one of these little ones, it were better for you that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea. Even though the policy completely contradicted that, and even though it was the leaders who instituted that policy in the first place, it's the members who have to be reminded and invited to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, to love God and to love one another. Sincerely, drumroll please, the First Presidency. And frankly, I take this somewhat personally because I am a member of the LDS Church. But don't blame me for your incompetence in creating this policy in the first place. I'm not the one who created this policy. I'm not the one who snuck it into the leadership manuals. I'm not the one who called it a revelation. I'm not the one who reversed it three and a half years later. And I'm not the one who called the reversal of the policy revelation. So please, President Nelson, do me a favor. Don't blame me for your dumbass move. Don't blame the members of the church for what you caused in the first place. So now in this press release, we get to the details that are shared by President Oaks. At the direction of the first presidency, well, of course, as we all know, this comes from President Nelson, this reversal of the policy that he himself claimed was revelation just three years before. At the direction of the first presidency, President Oaks shared that effective immediately, children of parents who identify themselves as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender may be baptized without first presidency approval if the custodial parents give permission for the baptism and understand both the doctrine that a baptized child will be taught and the covenants he or she will be expected to make. So effective immediately, April 4th, 2019, the policy from November of 2015, which President Nelson himself declared to be revelation, is now being reversed by revelation. So not only can the children now be baptized, they can also be blessed. President Oaks goes on. A non-member parent or parents, including LGBT parents, can request that their baby be blessed by a worthy Melchizedek priesthood holder. So that takes care of the kids. But what about their parents, the ones who are in the gay relationship? Well, the Lord has seen fit to reverse himself on that as well. No longer will that relationship be classified as apostasy, requiring church action and church excommunication by the local leaders. Instead, it will now be lumped under a simple violation of the law of chastity, which is where it was before the November 2015 policy. Previously, Elder Oak says, previously our handbook characterized same-gender marriage by a member as apostasy. While we still consider such a marriage to be a serious transgression, it will not be treated as apostasy for purposes of church discipline. Instead, the immoral conduct 
in heterosexual or homosexual relationships will be treated in the same way. Please notice a couple of things about this part of Elder Oak's comments. First, as I said, gay marriage is not apostasy anymore, so it is not required by local church leaders that they have a disciplinary court and excommunicate such people. Elder Oaks is now going to back off of that, lump it in with violations of the law of chastity, which means that now it's up to the discretion of the local leaders as to what they do in those situations, even though President Oaks does give to the local leaders a strong elbow in the ribs by saying that they still consider such a marriage to be a serious transgression. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. It will not be treated as apostasy for purposes of church discipline. Also notice the absolute avoidance of taking any responsibility for this policy in the first place. Here's how President Oaks put it. Previously, our handbook characterized same-gender marriage by a member as apostasy. He doesn't say that three years ago, we put this policy in the manual in the first place. No, he says, previously, our handbook characterized same-gender marriage by a member as apostasy. It's as if he's walking along the street and all of a sudden they find this horrible policy in the manual. Where did that policy come from? How did that get into our handbook? Well, the Lord wants this policy changed. That's the message from President Oaks. It's like he's telling the audience that on his way to conference that morning, he found this little kitten in the road that had been hit by a car, and he grabbed it and he took it to the hospital because obviously it needed some medical attention, and he is a good apostle of Jesus Christ who wants to take care of little kittens and make sure that they are treated with kindness and compassion. The one thing Elder Oaks doesn't tell his audience is that he's the one who ran over the kitten in the first place, and he ran over it on purpose. And not only did he run over it once, he backed up and ran over it again. That's how Elder Oaks is going to treat the appearance of this policy in the handbook. He goes on to say, The very positive policies announced this morning should help affected families. We've got to parse that line as well. First off, note the very positive policies. He cannot call this change, this reversal, a very positive policy without at the same time calling the original policy from three years ago in which he was involved up to his eyebrows, as was President Nelson, the opposite of very positive. It was a very negative policy. At one and the same time that he calls the change a very positive policy, he has to call the original policy itself very negative. And then he says the very positive policies announced this morning should help affected families well, why are they affected in the first place, Elder Oaks? Could it be that they're affected because of the original policy that you put in place and that President Nelson called revelation from God? How could it be that these are affected families unless they were families affected by the very policy that you put in place three years before? But Elder Oaks is not done laying the blame on the members of the church and eschewing blame from the leadership of the church. He goes on, in addition, our members' efforts to show more understanding. Oh my gosh, this actually makes me upset as I read it. In addition, our members' efforts to show more understanding. How about your efforts to show more understanding, Mr. Compassion, Mr. Understanding, Elder Oaks? In addition, he says, our members' efforts to show more understanding, compassion, and love should increase respect and understanding among all people 
of goodwill. Well, more and more, it's sounding like the leadership of the church are outside that category of people of goodwill. I don't know about the membership of the church. I think there are a lot of members of the LDS church who are people of goodwill, but I'm getting more and more doubts about those in the top leadership positions in the church. He says, we want to reduce the hate and contention so common today. Well, Elder Oaks, would that be the hate and contention that you caused or at least added to by the institution of this policy in the first place three years ago? He says, we are optimistic that a majority of people, well, not the leadership of the church, they're the minority. We are optimistic that a majority of people, whatever their beliefs and orientations, long for better understanding and less contentious communications. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through this. This is surely our desire. B.S. Elder Oaks, if it were surely your desire, you wouldn't have instituted the policy in the first place. That is surely our desire, and we seek the help of our members, see once again it's the members, and others to attain it. Finally, this news release says, these new policies are being sent to priesthood leaders worldwide and will be included in online updates to our church handbook for leaders. These changes do not represent a shift in church doctrine. God forbid anybody should think that it's a shift in church doctrine. By the way, it doesn't make any difference if it's a shift in church doctrine. It doesn't make any difference if you call it a doctrine or if you call it a policy because once again, remember, doctrines in the LDS church never change, but policies they can change. So Elder Oaks and the church are doing everything they can to call this a policy and not a doctrine. Therefore, it's because it's a policy that it can change. If it were a doctrine, it could not change. It makes no difference whether it's a doctrine or a policy for purposes of this discussion because President Nelson called this policy a revelation from God in January of 2016. Whether it's a policy that's received by revelation or a doctrine that's received by revelation, it doesn't make any difference because three years later, they are saying that God has now, by revelation, reversed the policy that God gave by revelation three years earlier. Once again, these changes do not represent a shift in church doctrine related to marriage or the commandments of God in regard to chastity and morality. The doctrine of the plan of salvation and the importance of chastity will not change. Then this final comment. These policy changes come after an extended period of counseling with our brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and after fervent united prayer to understand the will of the Lord on these matters. So once again, this is the will of the Lord and it was only arrived at after the members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency spent an extended period of time counseling and in fervent united prayer to understand the will of the Lord. Brief parenthetical comment. If these gentlemen at the head of the church have direct communication with God as they like to imply and sometimes even state, if they have this direct pipeline to communication from deity, why is it that they have to counsel with each other and spend extended periods of time counseling with each other and after fervent united prayer to understand the will of the Lord? Why doesn't God just tell them what he wants and then they do it? This alone gives an insight into what passes for revelation in the LDS church today. But also notice that this language sounds eerily reminiscent of what it is that President Nelson said happened when the revelation on the policy was originally received. Do you remember his words about how it was received? Here's what he said. Filled with compassion for all and especially for the children, 
we wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter. Sounding familiar yet? He goes on. Ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of his hope for eternal life for each of his children, we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord... Each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. So the contrast could not be more clear. The same process was followed in the institution of this policy, which was received by revelation, at least according to President Nelson, was received by revelation after all the apostles were wrestling in prayer and counseling with each other over an extended period of time in order to understand the will of the Lord. And now three years later, the same process is gone through in order to understand that God wants his policy reversed. Once again from the news release on the reversal of the policy. These policy changes come after an extended period of counseling with our brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and after fervent united prayer to understand the will of the Lord on these matters, unquote. So now having said this much, let me make a couple of comments about this strange state of affairs where the Lord can give a revelation in November of 2015 that he wants this policy of exclusion in place. And then just a little over three years later, on April 4th, 2019, God changes his mind and by revelation wants the policy reversed. The first point is this. Most of us understand that as a general proposition, we all do things in our life that we're proud of. We also do things in our life that we are not proud of. And it is the general human nature that when we do things that we're proud of, we want the public to know, or at least we are not ashamed that the public would know about something if we're proud of it. On the other hand, if we do something that we're not proud of, we don't want the public to know. We would rather that be done in secret and not come to the knowledge of people generally. Taking this general proposition, let's look at these two revelations that were received from God. First off, on the initiation of the policy three years ago in November of 2015. That was not publicly announced by the church. Instead, it was surreptitiously placed into the leadership manual by the leaders of the church. As I say, under the dark of night, it was not announced by the church and it only came to the public's attention when it was leaked on November 5th of 2015. This is something that the leadership of the church made a decision to not announce publicly, but instead to do under cloak of darkness. This suggests that they were not proud of the change that they were making. Now, by comparison, let's look at the new revelation, the one reversing that policy. This one, they act completely differently. Instead of sneaking it into the manual without telling anybody, the reversal of the policy is publicly announced in a news release on the church website. That suggests that leaders of the church were not proud of their decision to institute the policy originally, but they are very proud of their decision to reverse the policy. A second point I want to make has to do with plausible deniability. What do I mean by that? Well, it's obviously that leaders of the church, when they instituted the original policy, wanted people who were engaged in gay marriage to be excommunicated. Therefore, they labeled it as 
apostasy, which is basically tantamount to saying you're going to get excommunicated for it because the handbook already said that if a person is in apostasy, well, you've got to excommunicate them if they don't repent of that apostasy, right? You've got to excommunicate them. So by default, church leaders were telling the local leaders that they had to excommunicate people who were in gay marriages and that also their children had to be punished accordingly. Oh, by the way, another thing I forgot to say about that original policy undermining church doctrine was the idea in the Articles of Faith that men shall be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. In other words, we bear the burden for what we do, not for what our ancestors or our parents do. And yet this policy says that children of parents engaged in what the church considers to be wrongdoing, even though the children are innocent, they must be punished anyway by depriving them of priesthood ordinances of salvation. But it was my opinion at the time and remains the same today that three years ago when the church instituted the policy, the reason they did not make a public announcement and the reason they snuck it into the leadership manuals, which are not accessible generally to the public, but only to the local leaders, is because they wanted the local leaders to start acting upon this new policy and begin the excommunication process for people in gay relationships and the withholding of the ordinances to their children, and they wanted the local leaders to take the heat for that. Because the policy was a secret, because it had been put into the manual secretly, there was plausible deniability then, or at least some space or a buffer, where the church leaders in Salt Lake could sit back and let the local leaders take the heat for implementing the policy that the church leaders in Salt Lake had instituted in the first place. If that was part of the plan, then that plan got blown to smithereens when the policy was leaked and everybody found out about it. But now this recent reversal of the policy, I think, is designed to do a similar thing. It says that people who are in gay marriages are not in apostasy, therefore they don't have to be excommunicated by you local leaders. We're not meddling in your affairs anymore, local leaders. Instead, it's simply another violation of the law of chastity, which they do consider to be a grievous sin. They want to make sure that the local leaders know it's a serious transgression, it's a grievous sin, but the discretion is now with the local leaders as to how they deal with it. So once again, it seems like the leadership of the church in Salt Lake City wants to have their cake and eat it too. They still want to be trying to manipulate the outcome of these local disciplinary councils, but still be able to say the local leaders are the ones who are in charge. We're not telling them what to do. We're just letting them have their own discretion and treat this as a violation of the law of chastity as they would do in any other situation with heterosexuals. The third thing has to do with the very important idea of the relationship of God to the leaders of the LDS church and how it is that he reveals his will to them. Remember that the fundamental cornerstone of the modern LDS church is that the leaders of the church have the keys of the priesthood, they have the connection with God, that God reveals his will to them in a way that is so unmistakable that they know it's God's will, and they then implement God's will in the manner in which they lead the church, including the policies that they institute. Well, it seems to me that there are only four possibilities with regard to these two revelations, the revelation from 2015 that instituted the policy, and then the revelation from April 4th, 2019, that reversed the policy. Remember, both of them are claimed to be revelation, and both of them are claimed to be revelation by none other than the current president of the church, Russell M. Nelson. This brings the entire issue into sharp focus. The four possibilities are these. 
Possibility number one. Both the first policy and the second policy were given by revelation. Possibility number two. The first policy was given by revelation, and the second policy was not given by revelation. Possibility number three, the first policy was not given by revelation, and the second policy was given by revelation, and the final possibility is that neither of the two policies were given by revelation. The problem is that all four of these possibilities, or any one of these four possibilities, are detrimental to the faith claims of the LDS Church that it has a prophet or prophets who lead it and guide it by revelation from God. Let's look at possibilities number two and three first. If the first policy was by revelation and the second policy was not, then what are we to say about the fact that the church leaders are claiming the second policy is by revelation? Obviously, they don't know what revelation is. They are unable to identify a revelation as a revelation. And if they cannot identify something they claim as a revelation to be a revelation, then that opens the door to anything that they claim to be revelation, not actually being revelation. The same line of thought applies if we reverse those. And if the first policy was not a revelation, but the second policy was a revelation. What are we to do with the fact that President Nelson claimed the policy itself was a revelation if, in fact, it was not a revelation from God? And remember, this is the president of the church. He's not just an apostle. He's not a 70. He's not some other church leader. He is the president of the church. He is the prophet of God on the face of the earth today. What are we to make of the fact that President Nelson doesn't know a revelation from a hole in the ground, and especially when he is the prophet who is known for receiving revelation like hell isn't having any. He's been receiving revelations all over the place. He wakes his wife up in the middle of the night because he's getting revelation from God and has to write it down on a notepad. Apparently, she can't be present when he's doing this. She has to leave the bedroom and wait outside for several hours until such time as he can come forward with his notepad full of scribbling and saying, you'll never believe what God has been revealing to me tonight. He's received revelation about making the church from three hours to two hours. He's received revelation about getting rid of the high priest quorum and combining it with the elders quorum. He's received revelation about getting rid of the home teaching program and making it the ministering program. He's received revelation about getting rid of calling the church the Mormon church or the LDS church. Instead, it's got to be called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Church of Jesus Christ or the Church of Christ, but not the Mormon church or the LDS church. All of these things he has claimed to be received by revelation. If President Nelson cannot correctly identify a revelation, then what are we to make of all these other claimed revelations that he says he's receiving? Is he as accurate about identifying these as revelations as he was when he identified the policy of exclusion as revelation from God back in January of 2016? You can see how devastating the situation is to the faith claims of the LDS church that the prophet at the head of the church receives revelation from God and guides the church by that revelation. So those are the problems raised by the second and third possibilities. You'll remember that the first possibility was that both of them are revelations. Well, if both of them are revelations, then we've got a real problem with God. If the institution of the policy three years ago was a revelation from God and the reversal of that policy in April of 2019 was also a revelation from God, then God apparently doesn't know what he's doing. It appears that the God from three years ago was not aware that three years later he would have to be reversing the policy. Otherwise, we've got to presume 
that three years ago he would not have instituted that policy in the first place. What kind of God is so short-sighted that he's going to institute a policy in November of 2015 that he's only going to have to reverse three and a half years later in April of 2019? Well, this is the only faith-promoting answer to the question. But unfortunately, it raises problems, not with the leadership, because under this analysis, the leaders do understand what revelation from God is. These were real revelations from God. So the problem now isn't with the leadership. The problem now is shifted to God Almighty himself. And in this sense, the leaders are actually throwing God under the bus by claiming these are both revelations. God is the one who has to answer for this. We don't know the reason for it, but God must have the reason, and it must be somewhere in the mysteries and the mind of God. He won't tell us what the reason is, but there must be a reason. Therefore, it's up to you to come up with the reason. And there are several people with whom I have spoken who are faithful members of the church who have tried to come up with that reason. And one of the reasons they say is that the reason that God instituted that policy three years ago, is that it was designed to get rid of the chaff from the church. In other words, all those people who resigned over the policy in the first place, that was the reason that God instituted the policy, was to get rid of those members who were not committed enough to the church, were not committed enough to the leaders of the church, and were not committed enough to following their teachings that they left the church over this policy. And so now that that purpose has been taken care of, it has been fulfilled, now God's going to do what he really intended in the first place, and he's going to reverse that policy and put things back on track. The problem with this is that as we have seen, the policy in its first place was completely contradictory to the teachings of Jesus Christ and also to the teachings of the LDS Church. We've talked about those. It has been contradictory to those in a number of instances. So if that theory is true, imagine that you're God. Imagine that you're Jesus Christ and you're the one who's responsible for giving this revelation about the policy to the church in order to get rid of the chaff among the membership of the church. What you've got to be doing is saying this, I'm going to give my leaders a revelation that institutes this policy in the church. This revelation is going to contradict everything of significance that I taught during my mortal ministry, in addition to things that I taught in my revelations to the founder of the LDS church, Joseph Smith. And then I'm going to do that in order to get rid of certain people from the church. Now, the people who leave the church are going to be the ones who would choose my teachings. I'm still speaking as Jesus here. I hope you'll forgive me. The people who leave the church are those who are going to choose my teachings over the teachings of the leaders of the church when confronted with a contradiction. In other words, they're going to say, I'm going to choose Jesus over you leaders of the church. And those are the people that I want to get rid of out of my church? Those who would choose me over my leaders? See how that doesn't make any sense if you're looking at it from Jesus's perspective? I would think that he would want the people who would choose him over the leaders of the church if indeed he were going to create some kind of a test scenario there, some kind of Kobayashi Maru scenario. It's a no-win situation. If you, when confronted with a contradiction between what the church leaders are teaching and what I, Jesus, taught, you're going to choose me, well, those are the people I don't want in my church, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make any sense if you give it any amount of thought whatsoever. Therefore, that theory that God really was behind both revelations falls flat with me at least. If you believe that, I'll give it to you. You've got more faith than I do. At least you've got more faith in a God who doesn't know the future 
even three years down the line, and you've got more faith in a God who wants people in his church who will listen to men more than they will listen to God himself. And finally, we get to the fourth possibility. The fourth possibility was that neither one of them were revelations. Now, possibilities one, two, and three all seem to have been eliminated. And as Sherlock Holmes once said, when you have eliminated every other possibility, the one that remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, we've eliminated the first possibility, the second and the third possibility. The fourth possibility really does seem to be the only one that remains. And therefore, as much as we might not like to hear it, this fourth possibility does appear to be the truth, that neither one of them were revelation. I will tell you that Bill Reel, the day after the policy was leaked on November 5th, 2015, did a podcast in which he announced that this was not a revelation from God and that he knew it was not a revelation from God. It appears that Bill Reel was proven a prophet more than all 15 of the top leadership of the church. He knew this wasn't a revelation from God. It doesn't appear that the top 15 knew that. We know that President Nelson, two months later, claimed it was a revelation from God. And he lumped in all the other apostles in this experience as knowing that it was a revelation from God. So strange as it may seem, this recent announcement does tend to show that Bill Reel is more of a prophet than President Nelson, that Bill Reel is more in touch with the mind and the will of the Lord than President Nelson or any of the top 15 or all of them put together. And to the extent that Bill Reel, an excommunicated member of the church, excommunicated for apostasy, no less, to the extent that he has a better connection with God than the members of the 12 and the first presidency, that fact should be very troublesome to most Mormons. But now we have to move to something that is even more troubling in my mind. Let me approach this from my perspective. I used to be a TBM, a true believing Mormon who believed that the leaders of the church had special revelation from God. I even believed what they imply, that they meet with Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ speaks to them directly. That's how direct the communication and revelation is from God to the leaders of the church. But after a while and many decades in the church, I began to study Mormonism. I began to study the history. I began to pay attention to what was said in general conference. And I began to understand that really the leadership of the church had no special connection to God. And yet they continued to claim to have this special connection to God. I don't think I'm alone in this. So the question then was raised in my mind, are they sincere in their representations that they receive revelation from God. Even though I don't think they really have a special connection with God, even though I don't think that they're receiving revelation from God, are they at least sincere in believing that they do receive revelation from God? Because if they're not sincere in their claims to receive revelation from God, then they are making those claims knowing that they don't actually receive revelation from God. And that would be a very cynical move on their part to claim that they receive revelation from God, even though they know they don't receive revelation from God. Well, as I began to analyze their claims and their insinuations that they actually have seen Jesus Christ, and I did a podcast on this, have the LDS apostles seen Jesus Christ, I began to understand that they were making that claim or that insinuation or letting that belief exist out there among the membership of the church, even though they knew that they had not seen Jesus Christ. And I began to question their motivations and question how likely it might be that they could claim things of a spiritual nature for themselves 
that did not really exist in order to cement their position of influence and authority over the membership of the church. So I was certainly open to this idea that is it possible that when they're claiming revelation, they're not actually receiving revelation at all, but they're just claiming revelation in order to use that as the revelation card, that they're doing it knowingly and intentionally. But still, this seemed too cynical for me to buy into. But this latest reversal of the policy changes the entire landscape, in my opinion, because now it seems more likely than not that leaders in the church claim revelation even when they know they have not received any revelation. Let's go back to January of 2016. President Nelson creates an entire story about how the apostles were together, how they wrestled, how they prayed, how they counseled, and how they considered all the permutations, and then they got the revelation from God through Thomas S. Monson. And they received the spiritual witness that that revelation was indeed from God, and they sustained it as such. Even at the time when President Nelson said this, I had the idea that he might be making things up. He might be making up this entire story. And I got to tell you that when no other apostle stepped forward to corroborate his story, where he says they were involved, they were in the same room when it happened, I began to think that that was more and more likely. This was a complete fabrication on President Nelson's part. But I certainly didn't have any evidence that that was the case. But now, three years later, when he reverses the policy, and it's done with the same language, and it's done for the same reasons. Oh, by the way, the reasons are important. We'll get to them in a second. I'm left to wonder, was he making a false claim about Revelation three years ago? Or is he making a false claim about Revelation now? And how could he possibly believe that both of them are revelation from God. Something more than God is involved in this, and the something more is likely the backlash that was experienced by the church after this policy was leaked, and then after President Nelson made the fatal mistake of doubling down on it and calling it revelation in January of 2016. There's been immense backlash. People are leaving the church in droves, especially among the youth of the church who are the future of the church. And so what they decided to do is we've got to reverse this policy. We're going to do it publicly and we're going to call it revelation once again. And the reason we have to call it revelation once again, by the way, is because President Nelson is the one who called the policy revelation in the first place back in January of 2016. Now let's talk about the reasons for the policy. The reasons are the same. Remember, the policy was instituted to help the kids. It was for their benefit. Elder Christofferson said that. President Nelson said that. Not only is it by revelation, it's for the kids. But now the reversal of the policy is not only by revelation, it's for the same reason. It's for the kids. It's to help the kids out. It's to make their lives better. Well, how can the policy itself be for the purpose of helping the kids and the reversal of the policy be for the purpose of helping the kids. That makes no sense. If one of them helps the kids, the other one doesn't help the kids. That much seems logically inevitable. One policy can't help the kids and the reversal of the same policy also help the kids. Either one helps the kids or the other one helps the kids or neither of them help the kids, but both of them can't be true together. And so we end up left with a situation where it's starting to look more and more like leaders of the church, or at least some leaders of the church, and specifically, the president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, is not above claiming revelation from God, even though he knows there is no revelation from God. In other words, making a false claim of revelation from God 
on any specific issue. And on this specific issue about the policy or the reversal of the policy, I am personally at a loss as to how President Nelson could possibly believe that both of them were revelation from God. And if somebody has an idea as to how that could be, please explain it to me because I don't get it. I also don't understand how President Oaks or President Eyring could both believe that they're revelation from God. I cannot understand how any of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve could believe that both are revelation from God. We have reached the point in the LDS Church where it seems indisputable that leaders of the church will claim revelation from God when they know there is no revelation from God. That is the explosiveness of what has happened with the reversal of this policy. And to the extent, in my mind, to the extent that any of the apostles or the members of the First Presidency know and understand that this is not a revelation from God, either the first one or the second one, or both of them, to the extent that they know and understand that this is not a revelation from God, that the president of the church claimed a revelation from God when there was no revelation from God, in my mind, they are complicit in the fraud if they do not speak up and are simply silent. Their silence means consent in this situation. If they allow this fraud to continue to be perpetrated on the members of the LDS church who look up to them as prophets, seers, and revelators, they are complicit in the fraud. Fraud is a very strong word, and I'm trying to use it advisedly, but I just don't see any other way than that this is a fraud. And the fraud is that the leadership of the church claim revelation from God when not only is there no revelation from God, but they know there's no revelation from God. It is a completely cynical, manipulative act on their part similar to the way that they insinuate that they have seen Jesus when they have not. But this is more than just an insinuation that they've seen Jesus. This is a claim. This is a bald-faced, in-your-face, out-and-out, direct claim that both the revelation and its reversal were received by direct revelation from God to his anointed prophets, seers, and revelators. And once you get to this point in the road, everything begins to fall apart. The church's main claim to authority is that the leaders of the church, the apostles, the first presidency, have the keys of the priesthood. And the reason they have the keys of the priesthood is because they are members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency. How is it that they became members of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency? Well, because they were called of God by revelation. Well, if the leaders of the church will claim a revelation when they know they haven't received one, then what does that say about the calling of each and every member of the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency and the President of the Church himself? It means we can no longer trust the leaders of the church even when they say they have received revelation from God, perhaps especially when they say they have received revelation from God, to be telling us the truth. And those people who are called to those high positions in the church by revelation from God may not and probably are not called by any revelation whatsoever. This gets back to one of my favorite sayings by J. Golden Kimball from over a hundred years ago, who was a member of the 70 in the relatively early church back in Utah. He said that callings in the church, and he was talking about the callings to the top leadership in the church. He said that callings in the church are 10% revelation and 90% relation. That's 10% revelation, 90% relation 
relation. And I think that in light of what has happened recently, we may have to revise that statement and say that it's 100% relation. There is no revelation about it. And if these people are not called by revelation, then what keys can they honestly say that they hold? There are no keys. There is no priesthood. And in fact, what is a prophet who claims falsely to have received revelation from God if he is not a false prophet? Once again, very strong language. I apologize for that. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But if the president of the LDS Church, the current living president of the LDS Church, is claiming revelation that he knows is not revelation, he is doing it falsely. And it's looking more and more like that's exactly what's happening here. It either happened three years ago or it happened just this month. If he is doing that falsely, what other phrase can we use to describe him than a false prophet? So I'm sorry to say that it looks like President Nelson is a false prophet, that he has proved it himself by his own words. Either he was a false prophet in January of 2016 when he claimed the policy was a revelation from God, or he is a false prophet in April of 2019 when he claims that the reversal of that policy is a revelation from God. This is a sad day for the LDS Church. It is a day I never thought that I would live to see. I was just about to finish the podcast when I received some late-breaking news. It appears that none other than Greg Prince has given us some information, which may cast further doubt on the accuracy of the story that President Nelson told in January of 2016 regarding the details of the coming forth of the revelation of the policy of exclusion. Now, Greg Prince is a widely respected scholar on things related to Mormonism. He is the author of the book, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism, which came out a number of years ago. And more recently, he has authored a book called Gay Rights and the Mormon Church, Intended Actions, Unintended Consequences, which was published just last December of 2018. Greg Prince is a meticulous scholar and what I would consider to be an unimpeachable source of information. And that is why my ears picked up when I heard that he had been interviewed on the Salt Lake Tribune podcast called Mormon Land. This was very recently. I want to play a couple of clips from his interview there because he is connected. He has sources of information at high levels in the LDS Church. And the information he gives us is very, very interesting when we compare it with what President Nelson said regarding the details of the coming forth of this policy of exclusion. The first clip has to do with President Monson's mental state. At the time, this policy came forth in November of 2015. You will remember that Russell M. Nelson described a story in which President Monson received the revelation and announced it to all the members of the Quorum of the Twelve. Play the tape. And then when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. So Russell M. Nelson says that in November of 2015, President Thomas S. Monson declared the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord. It appears that he wants the audience to forget or overlook the fact that at the time, President Monson was deeply into the stages of dementia. This is something that Greg Prince mentions in his interview on Mormon Land. Play the tape. So what have you heard about how the policy actually germinated from this into this response? There are still some unknowns in there, and I don't want to try to speculate. The 
the first known is that it was in direct response to the Supreme Court decision. Uh, whoever did it amongst the 12 took it into President Monson and, as I understand it, presented it as a package saying this is what we need to do. At that time, it was an open secret that President Monson had sunk fairly deeply into dementia. And people I talked to in the medical community who weren't his primary care physicians, but who knew what was going on, said he was not capable at that time of having formulated this decision. So his response, whatever it was, was something of a reflex response, uh, and that was the go-ahead. So my question is, if President Monson was so deeply into dementia that he could not have formulated this policy in the first place, why is Russell M. Nelson saying in January of 2016 that President Thomas S. Monson declared the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord when President Thomas S. Monson was not mentally capable of even pronouncing his own will, much less the will of the Lord? But it gets worse because Gregory Prince shares something else with us. You will remember that President Nelson describes a lengthy process in which all of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve met repeatedly at the temple over a prolonged period of time. They wrestled in prayer. They counseled with each other. They considered every possible permutation as to this policy before they put it into place. And yet, in Greg Prince's interview on Mormon Land podcast on April 10th, 2019, he drops the bombshell that apparently D. Todd Christofferson did not know anything about the policy until the Tuesday before it leaked. In other words, Apostle D. Todd Christofferson did not know anything about the policy until Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015 two days before it leaked to the media. And according to Gregory Prince's source, who is Tom Christofferson, D. Todd Christofferson's gay brother, that is exactly what D. Todd Christofferson told his brother, Tom Christofferson, happened. Play the tape. Uh, and that was the go-ahead. But what Tom Christofferson said that evening, so this now is Thursday evening, he said he had spoken to his brother Todd earlier and that Todd had told him that Tuesday morning was the first that he had known about this policy and that it was presented to the 12 as an up or down vote without debate. Stop the tape. This is a bombshell. If indeed D. Todd Christofferson Apostle D. Todd Christofferson did not know anything about the policy until the Tuesday before it was leaked, and then it was simply presented to the quorum for an up or down vote without debate. If this is correct, what are we to make of all the details from President Russell M. Nelson in January of 2016 that directly contradict this story? Once again, I am going to play the clip of President Nelson describing the process of receiving this policy. And as I compare it with what D. Todd Christofferson apparently said, I am left utterly astonished that it appears that President Russell M. Nelson is making this story up out of whole cloth. Play the tape. The first presidency and quorum of the Twelve Apostles counsel together 
and share all the Lord has directed us to understand and to feel individually and collectively. And then we watch the Lord move upon the president of the church to proclaim the Lord's will. This prophetic process was followed in 2012 with the change in minimum age for missionaries. And again with the recent additions to the church's handbook, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries, filled with compassion for all and especially for the children. We wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter, ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of His hope for eternal life for each of His children. We considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then when the Lord inspired his prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson. Well, that's a nice story, President Nelson, but it appears to contradict with what D. Todd Christofferson says actually went down. And this perhaps explains why it is that no other apostle came forward after President Nelson told this story in January of 2016. No other apostle came forward to corroborate that version of events because they knew it did not happen. They're not going to come forward and corroborate something that they know did not happen. But this raises another concern, which is that if this is correct, each and every one of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the counselors in the First Presidency know that President Russell M. Nelson made up a story out of whole cloth regarding how it was that this policy was received by revelation, and they nevertheless sustain him as a prophet of God. And not only that, they encourage the members of the church to do likewise, to sustain President Russell M. Nelson as a prophet of God when they know that he makes up things and says them as if they are true. And it's not just any kind of small thing. It's a story about how a revelation was received from God when all the other apostles know it never happened. This is a very unhealthy situation in the church. And I think it tends to show that no matter what the president of the church does, all the other apostles are going to join ranks and sustain him regardless of whether they know that he has done something wrong, regardless of whether they know that he has lied to the members of the church, and regardless of whether they know that he has lied to members of the church about receiving a revelation from God. This is a very troubling issue indeed. And so, in order to lighten the mood, I want to play a special song to close out this podcast. This song is in honor of President Nelson, who now has crowned himself king of conflicting revelation in the LDS Church, and by so doing, has effectively jumped the shark. 
just like Fonzarelli did in that episode of Happy Days so many years ago. This one's for you, President Nelson. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. Can't be wrong, rocking and rolling all week long.